0: Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, well, before we jump into that text, let's, let's pause and let's pray and invite God into the space. Father, we open your word to have you speak truth to us. And I pray now for all of us in this room, me included, you would give us open hearts to hear afresh your word, to give us hope and life and salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on March 22nd, something changed for me. My wife gave birth to our fourth child, but it was our first baby girl, Eden Noel. And having a girl was different than our three boys. And, and kind of leading up to the birth of Eden, lots of, like, lots of people would tell me that. And dads of girls in particular would uh, tell me that. That one of my friends just came up to me uh, last week, himself, a dad of three boys and a girl, just said, I've been thinking about you all week, Right, just knowing it's like it's different. It's different with a girl. Or I have another friend, who uh, has told me many times that anytime he just starts talking about his daughter, uh, especially like her growing up, he just starts crying. And I used to be like, like get it, get it together, man. Like get a grip. Um, and then there I was at the birth of Eden, like crying, and Misty totally calling me out <laughs> on it, because <clears throat> like, girls are different. And don't misunderstand me. I love my three boys. They're awesome. I wouldn't trade them in for anything. And yet having a little girl is different. It's beautifully different. Why? That's the question we're really going to explore for the next two weeks, the next two Sundays, what it means that God made us male and female. And I feel like it's worth a quick disclaimer. You know, probably one of the, the core values we have as a church, at least I have as a pastor, is like what sets the tone and agenda for what we say and teach here is is the scriptures. And so we often, we preach through whole books of the Bible, that, that, that's our MO, that's typically how we go. And sometimes what that means is like we end up with just weird sermons on weird Sundays that maybe we could have thought a little better out ahead of time. It's so like we're, I recognize we're like in the lead up to Easter and it's like today we're gonna talk about gender, male and female. Next week we're gonna talk a little bit about sexuality, male and female. Maybe there's a better way to like time that out from a calendar. Uh, standpoints. And, and yeah, like our core commitment is we want the scriptures to define what we say. And so sometimes we end up with weird moments like next Sunday on Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about uh, sexuality and have kids wave palms. So it's going to be, <laughs> come back. Uh, <clears throat> but where I want to start, because really it's we're, two weeks, male and female, he created them. What does that mean? And I want to start just with like three questions uh, for, just to have in your mind, we're going to think more about them next week, but I want to put them in front of you now. Three questions. The first one being, when it comes to gender, when it comes to male-female, where have you gotten the ideas that you live off of? That when it comes to men, women, and what you take to be true, where did those ideas come from? Have you thought about that? Have you explored that? Secondly, is what does, like, what does Jesus in particular say about male and female? If we're Christians, if we're in the way of Jesus, um... Like, he, if you're a Christian, like, that's the most important thing. What does Jesus say? How does he think about these things? Um, and then thirdly, uh, right, like, we're in the tradition of a church that goes back 2,000 years, right? We're drawing from lots of tradition here. What has the church traditionally said about here? How have, how have Christians traditionally um, thought about these things? And I just, just keep those questions in mind as we begin to explore uh, this idea of male and female, God created us. And here's where I want to start, where I started with my own family dynamic over the last couple of weeks, which is that men and women are different. And they are different in an intentional way. They were made to intentionally, male and female, were made to intentionally display a diversity of beauty. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of this series, uh, Andrew and I have both pointed out that when you read Genesis 1 and 2, there are a number of refrains, like repetitious statements in order to draw your attention to something that's important. And the Hebrew Bible does this often. It it uses refrains to highlight things that are important, to just draw our attention into something. And so one of those refrains in Genesis 1 is God makes something, and after he makes something, he, he pauses, and we read the sentence, and God saw that it was very good, or that it was good. And you get that refrain five times, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And so what, he, what God's doing in creation or what that refrain is doing is showing like this, is, this creation is, is good, it's beautiful, it's intentional. And so when God makes something, he stops, he pauses, and he says, you, thing I just made, you are good, right? So God makes the platypus, right? And he's like, platypus, you are good. And there's, that's refrain all through Genesis uh, 1, you are good, you are good. But there's two places where that refrain, and God saw that it was good, it breaks, it changes, and very intentionally so, in order to say, look at this, this is important, don't miss this. In the first place this refrain is interrupted is in Genesis 1:31. 31, uh, what we looked at three weeks ago, when uh, God finishes creating human beings, right, so he creates all the world, then he creates human beings and this is what happens at the end of the creation of human beings. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. All right, so the refrain off of Genesis one, and it was good, and it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good, and then human beings are created, and God saw it was very good. Human beings have a level of value and dignity that is unique in all of creation. We're not like the animals. That's the second, or first place the refrain breaks. The second place the refrain breaks is in the passage I just read, which is in verse 18. And here's what what it says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. So we've gone good, 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 very good, not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. So for the first time, God looks at his creation and is like, that's not good, that's broken. There's something wrong with the picture here. And a lot, of po- a lot of people use this text to say, this is why, like, human beings, we need community. We need other human beings around us. And that's certainly, like, that's a true point. Uh, we do need other human beings around us, but that's not the point Genesis 2 um, is making. Because if God was just like, you need more human beings, he could have made a lot of human beings. He could have made, like, the first community group, and they could have done life together, like a group of people. But that- God doesn't make a group of people. Somebody does. He creates only one being a female, a woman, that God looks at the man and says, this guy needs help. <laughs> and then he see, looks at the guy and he says, this is not good, right? And, and, but what this guy needs is not more people. He needs, he needs a woman. He needs a female. And this checks out. Uh, up until the, the birth, <laughs> thanks, yeah, uh, up until the birth of our daughter, uh, before we knew what gender we were having, our middle son, Micah, was very adamant that we were going to have a girl, and that God was going to give us a girl, because we didn't need any more boys, and so there was, <laughs> there was one prayer he prayed, and like, this was his prayer, he said, God, please give us a girl, because we can't have, one, two, three, four boys, that's too many. That, that was his prayer, and that, he already understands Genesis 2, right? He looks at a, a house full of boys, and he's like, this is, there's something wrong here, right? This is, this is not good. It's too many. And, and so just sit with that for a minute. That I, like, I've tried to let that idea sink into me this week, that my, my world is incomplete, <clears throat> insufficient, not good, without the female gender, without women. And this is not just about like marriage, although obviously this has incredible implications for marriage. Like God would want me to, to, to look at my wife, Misty, and say life without her is, is not good, right? You have no idea how much you need her, no much idea she compliments you. And yet it's, it's not just about marriage. This is, this is a male-female relationship. And so if you are a man, you need a uh, you need your wife or you need your mother, your daughters, your sisters, your sisters in Christ in this community. You need the opposite gender because a life with only, only male, only female, not good. And, and similarly, women need, um, if, if they're married, their husband or their father, their, their brothers, their sons, the brothers in Christ in this community. We need good members of the opposite gender in our lives because without that, it's not good that God could not create a good world that did not include both male and female. A world of only men is not good. A world of only women would be not good. A meaningful, beautiful creation that's very good is male and female. And so let's go back to my, my question. What, okay, what is it about a girl that's, that's different? And the first thing I want to speak to with that is, is you know, going back three weeks ago, one of the things we leaned into a little bit is that when God makes men and women, he intentionally uh, says men and women both image God. And so there's a sense in, in the ancient Near East culture, culture, most people didn't believe that. They just thought one uh, male figure, probably the king of the local nation state, only that person was the image of God. And yet in the Hebrew understanding, every man, every woman image God. And so in one sense, there's just like a radical equality between men and women. They both image God um, in their own way. And so what, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a man in the biblical sense, or a woman? Like what is biblical masculinity or what's biblical femininity? And that would be, thats I've been thinking a lot about that. I wish I could just have preached that sermon and that's a sermon worth preaching. But I just wanna lean into like a couple of big themes. What does it mean to be a man in the sense of the Bible? What does it mean to be a woman in the Bible? And and really just sticking with Genesis 2 for this moment. And, and in Genesis 2, when it comes to being female, uh, the Hebrew word used to describe the, the woman that is created for the man is the Hebrew word Azer. Uh, it's translated as help in, in English, which, which can sound weak, right? It can sound like a servant or like someone who's less important than the, the person that they are, are helping. Um, and yeah, Azer in Hebrew is not a, it's not a weak word um, at all. And if, if you read through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the primary uh, use of Azer is to describe um, God helping people when they are, are weak or in danger. Um, and so one of the best illustrations of this is Psalm 70, verse 5. Uh, here's what Psalm 70 says using this word. The psalmist writes, uh, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my Azer, my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay and there is is there for you when you're weak when you're poor when you are in need to nurture you to care for you to keep you safe nurture you back to life and so biblical femininity in, in Genesis 2 what the female does is project strength and safety and nurturing help when there's vulner, when there's vulnerability when there's there's danger it's not a weak word at all so that's that's Genesis 2 from a, a feminine you know, perspective. In terms of the masculine perspective, um, Genesis 2 is, is, is interesting because the female is created differently than all of the other elements of creation that we, we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And we spent time on that. I, I made the case, Genesis 1, when God creates something, he creates it out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the phrase that Christians have traditionally used, and what that means is when God made the world, He didn't take like you know, it wasn't like there was a ball of clay that God had to work with and He made stuff out of that. No, God speaks something into existence, and it comes into existence out of nothing. Right, so there's nothing, and then God speaks, and it's created. And yet, with the female, uh, what we read is that that God puts the man to sleep. He takes a rib from the man, so He takes already existing creation. He takes the rib from the man. And that's how he creates the females, from out of the man is how he creates uh, the woman. And, and that's why we get the first song. It's why when the man sees the female, he's probably feeling the effects of the surgery that was performed on him without his permission, um, and he's hurting, right? And he looks out, he sees this, this female, and he, he composes the first love poem of all time. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so the female being comes into existence out of the man giving up his own physical life, probably through pain and, and if there was blood, like, like through a physical part of himself being removed so that she can have, she could have life, creation. And so this idea that men like, sacrifice something of themselves to give life to others is like, this, like the biblical masculine idea, which runs all the way from Genesis 2 right to Jesus, whose defining act of his own life was the enduring of physical pain in order to sacrifice his own life so that others might have life themselves. And so to be a biblical man, it's, it's to have the courage of sacrifice, the courage to deny your own desires, to deny your own pleasures, and to give of yourself and to give life to someone else, to use your strength as a man—not to get your own way, but to give up your own way, so that others might have life, so that others might flourish. And I think just men of this church, and in, in, especially in this cultural moment, for what men are known of in our own culture, I like—I hope those are the two things we would be known for. One is—is is, is this courage of like, like there's like like men is like having a rib taken out of you. Like that's the first thing that happens to a guy like a physical act of courage of denying yourself, giving life to something else. And two is that like being a man means my strength is used for the flourishing of others, not for myself. And so this, that's probably a good moment for transition, right? So this beautiful ideal, this is what a man would be. This is what a woman would be in light of Genesis 2. And yet uh, male and female, as we know it, is, is broken, uh, before I moved to Kansas City, I lived in Chicago, and uh, and in the last couple of years, the, arguably the two most prominent pastors in Chicago uh, have both been fired from their jobs, both men, uh, one for being abusive and belligerent, angry, misusing church funds, uh, Instead of giving himself away to others to sacrifice, he took from them financially, emotionally, and, and he was fired a couple of months ago. The other uh, example being uh, the other pastor was fired for sexual impropriety and harassment of the females that, that worked with him and, and, and around him. And that's just like, that's just a picture of the, the culture at large. We live in turbulent times when it comes to gender, and the church is not exempt from these things. We have our own problems. And it's, it's why, when it comes to gender, our culture is, is in a place where we want equality, um, and often what equality means is that we have to level the distinctions between men and women. Men and women aren't beautifully distinct and diverse um, and different. They have to become the same so that they can become um, equal. And it's important to note here, just, just quickly, that uh, You know, we use the term sex and gender, and those are like two distinct terms. What they mean is importance to sex. We use that physical sex means uh, whether you're physically male or female, and gender is how you express and live out, like, your identity, what's inside of you. So Ryan Anderson, author, uh, defines these two terms like this. He says sex is a bodily biological reality, or it's a physical piece of us, and gender is how we give social expression to that reality. Excuse me. So the predominant view in our our culture today outside the walls of the church is that like like your physical embodied sex is not connected to your gender. And gender is, it's a social construct. It's something that lives between your ears, something you feel inside and it's not tied to your physical createdness. And so that's why Judith Lorber, one of the first transgender activists, uh, said this about, about gender, which is I think becoming more and more a mainstream idea in our own culture. She writes this, it says i long for the day when gender distinctives have effectively disappeared when no longer anyone asks is it a boy or a girl in order to start gendering an infant when that, that information is as irrelevant as the color of the child's eyes only then will mem- when men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal when that happens there will no longer be any need for gender at all <clears throat> now in one sense like we should resonate with what she's saying because she, like, she was writing in a time, especially 40 or 50 years ago, when it was a very different experience of, of men and women and equality was not a thing that people experience. And yet, the way she gets to equality is to say, men and women, they're socially interchangeable, they're not distinct, they're not diverse, they're not different, they're the same. And once we get them to being the same, then we can be equal, which is very different than Genesis 2, which is would say, yes, men and women are equal, but because, like, because they're like, equally dependent on one another and they're beautifully diverse. And, and different. And another way that we see this like being worked and thought out in our own culture is through uh, is through gender dysphoria, the phenomenon where you sense your inner gender identity is not connected to your physical body, your physical um, sex. And if, if gender is ultimately, if it's just a social construct, if it's just something that's in between your ears and not connected to your physical um, body, then then you can be, you know, I'm a female who lives in a male body. Or, you know, like that, that, that begins to be the way that that is um, expressed. And this is something we're thinking out as a culture um, with lots of, of conflicts. Well, how do we respond to people who have this experience of being someone who is transgendered? And, and, and to sort of put pressure on that, we live in a time where there is massive change happening on this very, very, uh, very quickly and so there's television series like on Amazon Prime, like uh, Transcendent. There's the Boy Scouts of America who just changed their name to the Scouts of BSA and released an ad where a child, a transgender child, was putting on a Boy Scout <coughs> outfit. And so, uh, and, and and beyond that, just the likelihood of you and I knowing someone in our lifetime who is ex- who experiences gender dysphoria is transgendered. Um, like this is something we need to think about and respond to in a in a healthy, good way as. A church. And so what do we do with all this? I mean, you got like the, the male-female relationships, which just seems so strained in so many ways in our world. And then you have something like gender disorder. Like, how do we respond to this? And anytime I get there, it's like the best place to go is Jesus. And and Jesus says something I think that helps us with this. Um, in, in Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question that's meant to sort of trap him and, and get him into trouble. And it's a question to this day that we'll, is, pastors can get into trouble very quickly if, if we don't answer this well. And that is someone walks up to him and a big group of people and they say to Jesus, hey, what do you think about divorce? What are your thoughts on, on divorce? And Jesus, he, he says a couple of things that I think actually help us with, with this conversation on male and female. And the first thing he says, he quotes Genesis 2. Here's his first answer to that question. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, God is therefore joined together. Let man not separate. So the first thing Jesus does is he affirms, like the biblical account is the authoritative way of how we think about everything. How do you think about divorce? Well, What does what do the scriptures say? But also what he says there is to, to say that in marriage in particular, when a male and female unite, there's something that happens through the, the uniting of two bodies, physiologically, just physically, like spiritually, like that, that one flesh is created out of those two flesh. And so he gives credence to this idea in Genesis 2 that, like, male and female aren't just irrelevant categories that don't matter, that are insignificant. But he's like, like, no, we're like deeply intertwined with one another. And when they come together in marriage, like, there's a way, like he's, you just can't separate that without enormous pain or, or, or hurt. And so Jesus affirms the Genesis 2 story that we're in, like, our physical bodies and genders of, of our physical bodies and sex, like, they matter. You can't just do away with that. And, when, and, and in the context of marriage, like divorce isn't an easy solution to that because the two have become one flesh. There's something like just metaphysical that happened in the two coming together. And, and so I think you know, as, as we think about how to respond to gen, gender dysphoria as a church, I think one thing that we would have to say is that if, if our physical bodies matter so deeply, um, then, then to live out an identity, right, a gender, that's not connected in any way to my physical body, my physical sex, is not going to lead to flourishing. It's not going to lead to peace or wholeness. In the same way that, that divorce is ripping the part of two flesh, a male and a female, trying to live out a different gender identity than what my physical body is, is like trying to rip two things apart. It's just, it's just not going to lead to flourishing or, or hope or peace. And Paul McHugh, who ran the gender identity clinic at Johns Hopkins for a number of years, um, was on the front lines of the, the transgender conversation and how to respond medically to, to people who have this experience. And, and they were, so, that hospital was, some of the, was one of the first to perform uh, reassignment surgeries and help people trans- transition from one gender to another physically as well as, as in their identity. And Paul McHugh got to a place where he stopped performing those surgeries, because what they found was after the surgery was completed and someone had completed that transition physically, uh, it, did not, it did not help them um, like in social integration, in, physical, in, in emotional well-being. Not, like, transitioning from one physical gender to another, it didn't, it didn't solve the inner tensions that those people were already experiencing, which is why he stopped performing those surgeries. He thought he was actually doing harm in, in trying to, to hold this out as a cure, and it wasn't working. And as a Christian for whom Genesis 1 is, is my authoritative narrative like in understanding the world, like that's not surprising to me that if if someone has an experience internally that their gender is different than their phys- physiological or their physical sex, there's just not going to be an easy solution to that, right? There's not going to be, uh, hey, go have this or take this, and it all goes away, right? That, that, that's, that's a deeply integrated uh, tension that is going to take a lot of work to think through and wrestle through. And as a Christian, it's why I, I don't think it's, it's ultimately helpful just to say, well, just transition and all the problems go away because our, our physical createdness matters. And when God makes us a particular uh, biological sex, to, to live out a different gender than that is going to introduce enormous tensions that won't lead to peace. And, and so that that's a part of, of, of the conversation that our culture would have probably enormous trouble um, with. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there. Right? He, gives, he gives this very hard teaching and then the disciples pipe up and it was like that like, this sounds impossible. No one can do this. And Jesus, here's what he says next to his disciples. After they hear him teach this about marriage, they say this, or Jesus says this to them after he, they say, no one can do what you just said. He says this. He so says, not everyone can receive this saying. I think that's important because if, <clears throat> if you're in the way of Jesus, right, you're, you're following and living out his teachings. People who are not in the way of Jesus, I don't think we should expect to live out the way of Jesus or his, his teachings. So this is like, I'm trying to speak to, as a Christian, this is how I'm thinking this, this out. So Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying, only those to whom it is given, only those who are my disciples. And then he says this, which just seems weird. Like, where is he going with this? Jesus says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Does that clarify everything about marriage for you? Like, see. why does he talk about eunuchs? Here and you have to think like what are eunuchs? Well, eunuchs were people who had most had had their physical bodily representation of their gender destroyed, most often against their own will, most often by a king or or someone in power who wanted them to be be kind of kept in place. And so these are people who could not have been married in the traditional Genesis two sense. So Jesus gives this very like direct teaching about. Um, male and female, he created them. This is the design. This is, this is what you're to live into. And then he goes and he recognizes and speaks to and for people who are not in that experience, who, are, who can't live into that design anymore because Jesus is compassionate. He goes out of his way to show he knows people who, don't, who are minorities, who don't fit into the conversation in normal ways, and he shows he cares for them. That he expects them to be a part of the kingdom of God. That he wants to be to be in communion. He wants them to be a part of his kingdom to include them, and he shows compassion to them. And so, as we as we think about both gender dysphoria, but just gender in in you know in general as a church, the two like guiding guardrails I think we have are one is is like there's a Genesis one design we can't just like not think about or just forget or say it doesn't matter. It does. Right? You said, like that's why marriage is, you just like divorce isn't an easy solution to tension in marriage because of it's ripping a one flesh apart. Um, and yet at the same time, Jesus like shows an awareness and a compassion and a desire for people who don't fit that mold to enter into his way and follow him and walk the hard road of discipleship in his way. And as a church, we should be the same way. We hold to, to truth and compassion. So where do we go? Where do we go from here? And ultimately, our, our tension, our problem is we live in a Genesis 1 designed world that's fallen and broken. And so people have experiences and feelings and desires that don't match the original Genesis 1 design. And yet we believe if you enter the way with Jesus, you, you, there's a good, redeemed, hopeful future ahead in the new heavens and new earth. And that's where we want to end. Is it male and female? Yes, it's a problem as we experience it now. But ultimately, male and female will be redeemed to image God perfectly. One of the, the best parts of my last two weeks with, uh, with our new baby girl at home is seeing how our three sons have interacted uh, with her. And it's been fascinating. And our, our youngest son, Abel, is the one we've had to watch the closest because he, he's the kid most likely to, uh, to cause harm or to be brave. I pretty much sum up Abel with a prayer he prayed this week before dinner. Um, he doesn't say thank you. He says amen. So this was his prayer. He said amen for Zaya. Uh, His older brother, oldest brother. Amen for Micah, his other other brother. Amen for our baby sister, and amen for this Lego man I built, and that I found a weapon for him. (laughs) And that was his prayer, right? Is God, thank you for my family, and thank you for weapons, right? That that was his. And it's a very boy, it's a very boy prayer. Um, And as I as I thought out this sermon, uh, male and female, He created them, and my sons and my daughter and how to, to enter them into the way of Jesus so that they're formed into the men and the women that Jesus would want them to be. Like I look at my son's like care for family and desire for war. Like, like he can either be someone who uses, like uses that nurturing care for self-sacrifice and denial of himself to, to sacrifice for others and give them life, or he can use it for how many men in our culture use it today, which is to, to take for himself. And so, like, how do we all keep our children, keep ourselves in the way of Jesus as he forms us into the distinct and unique men and women he wants to form us into? And there's two things I want to say to that as we close. One is, is remember you are not good alone. A world full of men is not good. And likewise, a world full of women without men is not good. We need one another, and I would ask: Is there is there a, a member of the opposite gender who's able to meaningfully speak into your life? If you're married, it should certainly be your spouse, right? Even when you know they point out a character flaw that maybe you don't agree with, or they say something that you're, you know, you're not sure you want to go there. Remember, like God looked at you by yourself and said, "No, nope, that's no, not good," and, and gave you a helper, an Azair, to to form you more into the way of Jesus that He wants you. to. To be. You're not good alone. And likewise, do you, do you see the coworkers, uh, the people you work with of the opposite sex uh, as, as indispensable, as important, that without them it's it's not good. And I want to say that doesn't mean men and women are the same. I think I think the unique contribution we have we can make as a church is on the one hand, we say men and women are not socially interchangeable. They're they're not the same, they're different, they're beautifully diverse and distinct and different. And yet also equally needed that without without the other you have an incomplete picture of the creation that God designs and or desires we need one' of each other you're not good alone that's one and then two is is let Jesus form you that if you are if you're a man, what kind of man does Jesus want you to become and if you're a woman, what kind of woman does Jesus want you to become and, and here like What's hard about the sermon is, you know, it's e- anytime you start gaming this out, it can just in become like just lean into stereotypes, right? It's like, man, you need to eat steak and watch football and grow beards, which like for me, that would be a perfectly acceptable like definition of masculinity, uh, except for the, it's not in the Bible, but I like it, um, and and that's a lot of times that's what we do is we just say, well, this is what I think a man should be, so I'm going to make that make a man into that, and or the same thing from a feminine standpoint, and yet the Bible. I think when you read it out, it, it actually, it doesn't go that that, that much into depth uh, very often because it, it, it just leans away from cultural stereotypes because I think um, even though God creates two genders, male and female, um, within those two genders, there's there's millions, billions of different expressions of what that's going to look like. And there should be freedom to explore and to think, what does it mean to be a man? What, what, is, what kind of woman is Jesus forming me? into. And you see, that, like, this is present all around in creation. And I've been reading uh, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is sort of like a meditation on, on Genesis 1 and 2 in some ways. And the thing that she just continually writes about is when you look at creation, it's just like there's nothing that's created that, where there's a duplicate of it. I say everything's a fresh creation. She writes this. She says, in, look, in short, at practically anything, the coot's feet, the mantis's face, a banana, the human ear, and see that not only did the creator create everything, but he's apt to create anything. He'll stop at nothing. And so part of what makes this sermon tough is like if if you're a woman, like there's a unique Isaiah like God's gonna create and make you into, and I don't wanna like fence in some categories that maybe are more cultural than biblical. So think through that. What, what kind of woman is God calling you to be? What, what, what kind of man is God calling you to be? There aren't copies. There's not repeats here. There's two genders that we are, we are to live within. And yet there's, there's beautiful diversity within those genders to live out what it means to be man, what it means to be woman. But the key, the key is, is to enter into the way of Jesus. Because any way of living, any way of life that's not, that's not in the way of Jesus, I think is fraught. With, with a lack of peace and a lack of, of salvation at the other end of it. And when it comes to to the tensions we feel with men and women in our own culture, when it comes to something like gender dysphoria, they, I really we're left with, with two options at the end of the day. One is just to look within myself and say, this is my identity. This is who I am. This is who I want to be. And to live that out and to express that out in whatever way that that I think is right. And that's, that's our cultural's primary way of saying this is how you should live. Look inside for who you are and, and live that out no matter what it is. But the Bible, it's a very different picture, which is, is not what's inside of me. It's, it's, it's who's my creator? Who, who, why do I have this body? Why am I here? And, and who made me? Why, like, why, why do I have existence? And the moment you, ha- you come in, in contact with that creator, with that, the one who, who made you, he begins to form you into the creation and the man, the woman that he wants you to be, but it means if that's if that's it, if that's the if like if that's salvation, if that's life, it means the most important thing is not what's inside, like the, my feelings, what I want to be. What's most important is my Maker, my Creator, and the way Jesus invites us into His way, into His life. Right? It's not, it's not from on high. And so you guys have screwed up the, the male and female thing. You know, get it together and come talk to me. Like, no, he, he enters into our world. He actually takes a physical. Body. He becomes the truest man who ever lives, who doesn't just have a rib taken out of his side so that the, the those around him could have life. He actually gives up his entire body, his entire self, his entire life so that you and I can have life. And it's why when the New Testament reflects on Jesus' salvation, there's always a body involved. Whether it's resurrected bodies or whether it's Jesus' own body dying for us, right? We're not just, just souls internally who are living out our identities. We're physical bodies connected to who we are and when, when the New Testament talks about salvation, this matters. And the best picture of that is, is in the letter of First Corinthians. The church in Corinth, that city was much like our own. Um, city. The, the, letter in Cor- the letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, talks about uh, gender dysphoria. It's in the letter. It talks about the ways we've messed up men and women. And so when you get to this, this beautiful picture of salvation in 1 Corinthians 6, this is the way Paul talks about salvation to this city. And I would say he would say the same thing to us in Kansas City. Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you, uh, within you, whom you have, have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul sees with clarity how our embodied existence as men and women is broken, is is not the way it was intended to be. It's, it's, It's marred, it's off. And so he says, that's why Jesus took a body and went to a cross and gave up his body and bought yours back with a price. So the body you have now, male, female, it's not yours. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It, it was paid for by the blood of Jesus to redeem you, to make you whole, to make you into the man, the woman that he is calling you to be. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we... As we think about male, or as I think about male and female, I've just, just felt a heaviness. Uh, in the world in which we live, God, it's just, it's been a rough few years in, in this, this realm of trying to express what it means to be men and women. And, and your church is no different. We, we have our own sin to own and think through here. And so I pray in this community, God, would, would this, this morning, just be a time where we want, we just, we just celebrate the diversity of the men and the women who are in this church, from, from babies all the way up um, to the mature among us, God, how beautiful it is to be male and female in this world. And God, would you make our church a, a signpost, an outpost of a different way of being, where men and women are, are beautifully different and yet in complete need of one another. Help us by your spirit to embody that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.